This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii U.S. Senator Senator uh, Maisie Hirono announced this week she intends to run for re-election. She was just named chair of the Armed Services Subcommittee tasked with overseeing the shutdown of the Navy's underground fuel storage facility at Red Hill. The Readiness and Management Subcommittee appointment is in addition to her serving on the Seaworthiness Subcommittee, which oversees U.S. Marines and Navy programs. She joined us uh, at our studios early this morning. The shutting down of Red Hill is, yes, part of the of jurisdiction, but readiness covers everything. It's like how ready is our Department of Defense in terms of anything coming up that requires their attention. So it's everybody. But I will be very focused on infrastructure, basic infrastructure needs. Red Hill, the electric electricity going off at Tripler, water mains breaking, sewer spills, all of that it points out that we need to pay attention to the military's infrastructure, not just in Hawaii, but throughout the DOD. I will be focusing a lot on that as readiness subcommittee chair. I know there's a lot of concern about the recent spill of the forever chemicals, the firefighting foam concentrate yes. and the PFAS cleanup that, you know, at one time nobody really knew how dangerous those chemicals and how long they lasted. Yes. And, uh, you know, that's all part of that picture. Very much. All of that. There is not, as far as I know, any kind of a plan to assess the infrastructure needs, not just in Hawaii, but throughout the country. And I've made it very clear to uh, the chair of the Armed Services Committee that I will be focusing on those things because that's pretty foundational. It's like if you live in a house and you're not paying attention to your electric systems or your water pipes or anything like that and things start breaking down, that's what we're facing, and that's what I want to address. It is going to be really, really costly, I'm sure, but you have to start somewhere. You know, the, the infrastructure bill that we passed is the biggest infusion into states and counties' infrastructure in the history of our country, I would say. We need to do a similar kind of assessment for the military. Well, I know that uh, with the concern about the growing tensions, uh, global tensions, uh, and the threats, you know, that we're facing in this region. Uh, yes. There are lots of concerns about military readiness as well. As you know, can we Very meet much the so. challenge? As we face what we call a pacing threat from China, and uh, of course Russia, and and what is uh, happening in Ukraine, there is a lot of emphasis on the Indo-PACOM. AORR, the area of responsibility, which means that we are very much strengthening our alliances throughout the region, including with Australia, New Zealand, obviously Japan, South Korea, and the Pacific Island nations. We are, we are in the midst of negotiating our compacts with the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, and Palau. Very important to our national security that we have in place these compacts. There's also the renegotiations with the military for properties here across our state. And, you know, there is, you know, concern about cleanup, you know, whether it be the Army on uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands, you know, up at, at Waimea uh, or Koho'olawe, you know, or, or, or Red Hill, you know. And, and so how do you plan to balance those concerns about the military's, you know, need for readiness and for those leases and then the concern that the, the, the residents have about there, cleanup. Yes, there's there's an immediate need. To me, Red Hill is the, probably the single most important readiness issue, although we should remember that we have the largest industrial employer in Hawaii is Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard. They take care of our ships, and there's a recent report that said that it's taking too long to repair our ships and it's costing a lot more. And so we need to modernize our public shipyards, of which there are four, Pearl Harbor being one of them. And there's a plan to to modernize all of our shipyards about time, I say. And then we are also needing to build a new dry dock at Pearl Harbor because we need to take care of the new class of submarines that are bigger are coming to Hawaii. So there's a whole range of readiness issues. Not to mentioned, by the way, our military people need to have training areas, Pohakaloa, 
Makua, they, these are all really important training areas. Um, for us to renegotiate those leases, we need to make sure to have the community have an opportunity to address their concerns, to express their concerns and have them addressed. So it, it is important for the military to be transparent, to be very focused on how they're going to, for example, safely defuel Red Hill. Because every time something happens, it just raises concerns on the part of the community of reliability, accountability of the military. They are well aware of those kinds of issues that have arisen and because I raise them a lot <laughs> with the military brass. And I just got through talking with Catherine Hicks, who is the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Defense. She is the person I talk with on a regular basis regarding the DOD's decision, finally, to close Red Hill, which was a very big deal because it's not that easy to tell the military, you are going to need to close this huge facility. But I, I spoke with her recently, and I said, you know, I would like to have a continuing commitment on her part and Secretary Austin's part to make sure that Red Hill Hill is handled, defueled safely, and also the aftermath, we need to continue to monitor and to make sure that there's no uh, contamination upon closure. You know, and I know there's a responsibility that the military has to its own, right, to the to the soldiers and sailors and their families who were affected terribly with the contamination. And, you know, I know many of those families have moved on to other to other bases, you know, to other states. But, you know, there's the Lincoln concerns about the health problems that they, you know, they might have been exposed to. Yes, so part of uh, the, the uh, response was to enable them to register their names, et cetera, that they were potentially exposed to something that will have long-lasting impacts on their health. And so there is a, a program that was set up at Tripler for this purpose to make sure that we are tracking people who were exposed because there were thousands of families that had to go to other places, including hotels. Some of them left the state. And so we, we need to address really the long-term impacts of this kind of exposure, not to mention there are businesses who are also impacted. And I want to make sure that the DOD makes them as whole as they can as a result of their having to bring in water for their businesses, etc. So the whole situation was just a wake-up and a call to action. This is why I am chairing readiness so that I can focus on these kinds of needs throughout the system. And you know, as as part of your responsibility, I know it, it covers the Navy and the uh, and the Marines. And I know with this transition in the Pacific, you know, shutting down of the bases on Okinawa, uh, moving them over to Guam, there'll be some families that will be coming here as well. I mean, I don't know what you are free to share about you know the build up there, you know, because of housing, right? I mean, we have such a housing crisis here off base, and then if you have other families coming in, I mean, I don't know what, you know, discussions you may have had about There's that. There's a lot of construction going on in Guam because as our Marines rotate out of Futema in Okinawa, and some of them will go to the northern part of Okinawa, there are issues there, but about 2,500 of them, I think, are going to go to Guam, and, and some of them, maybe 2,500 of them will be here. We obviously need to provide housing for them, so that will be one of the military construction projects that I will be supporting and looking at so that we can make sure that we accommodate all of our soldiers. At the same time, we need to upgrade military housing. There's all that. So I have been focused on bringing literally hundreds of millions of dollars in military construction to Hawaii for those kinds of upgrades and those kinds of purposes. Then we also need to uh, do a lot better oversight of military construction, military housing. A lot of them are handled by the private sector, and we've had hearings on the bad condition of housing, and now I think we've made it a lot plainer how our families can get their housing issues addressed more promptly. I don't know whether that build-out uh, is mainly on Kanyoi Marine Base or at Barber's Point. I don't know, you know, how soon we can wrap those up to meet the, you know, the transfer of those Marines. That's going to be within the next uh, number of years. Right now, there's a lot of focus on the need to build up Guam. And so as the military focuses on the Indo-PACOM area, Guam becomes a, a very important place. Strategic. <laughs> a very strategic, site. Mm -hmm. as is Hawaii. You know, we've had lots of headlines about the 
balloons, the weather balloons or the spy balloons mm -hmm. uh, in our waters. There was one just recently sighted over the weekend. I don't know, you know what you folks have been briefed on. Clearly, the big balloon that was shot down, that was a Chinese spy balloon. The other b balloons that have been tracked were um, also taken care of, but the conclusion, I think, is that these are not spy balloons. We're not quite sure whose balloons they are, educational institutions, we don't know. But there are not supposed to be balloons in airspace, by the way, commercial airline space. But there's a lot more attention on what's going on with these balloons. And, and also, I would say, additional attention to what is happening with all the satellites in near space and mid space that Russia and China and the U.S. very engaged in what is going on and with all of our space satellites. But you don't know anything specifically about the one that was sighted uh, over the weekend? Sighted at where? Uh, it was a few hundred miles east of Honolulu. Of Hawaii. We get these briefings. So what I do know is that they are very much tracked, and if there are any kind of issues relating to navigational safety, those are shot down, basically. And that was uh, Senator Maisie Hirona, who was in our studios early this morning, talking with us about military issues affecting Hawaii and the Pacific. Hirono at this hour is taking part in a roundtable discussion with Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke focused on preschool. Early education, Hirono recounts, was something that she pushed for when she was Lieutenant Governor, and she continues to work on federal legislation toward that aim. Hirono says as the daughter of an immigrant who raised three young children on her own, she knows the value of giving our keiki a head start in education. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Gober, author of An End to Upside Down Contact. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about research of reported interactions with UFOs, aliens, and spirits. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. The death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is nearing 50,000. The staggering number stems in part from shoddy construction in an area which has building codes designed to withstand the tremors generated in the earthquake-prone area. That was just one of the topics we discussed with Todd Hassler. He's the new director at the AIA Honolulu, which is the American Institute of Architects. Hassler is a partner with the firm Peter Vincent Architects, and we talked with him recently on a number of issues. Hawaii has some of the most restrictive regulations in the county, so that's a good thing. That proves that even though we're a little behind in our building codes, they're still very strict. And compared to Syria and Turkey and the earthquakes and the building there, you know, my understanding is that, yeah, there's a lot of corners that have been cut. You know, there's not a lot of oversight on the construction, so unfortunately they're finding that out after this unfortunate disaster. But for us here, we do adhere to a more strict kind of oversight and regulation and due process and all of that. So I don't think we're going to have the kind of results that they saw in Turkey. And, you know, that earthquake, it was it was significant, but the codes, even in Turkey, are specifically designed to withstand even stronger earthquakes. So it shows that, you know, the buildings that were constructed were subpar. Yeah, so, the devil's in the details, that's right? right? That's right. That's right. they don't right. follow the rules and if you don't have people enforcing the rules, those are the consequences. That's right. That's right. And here, you know, we have our DPP that reviews the drawings. We have professional architects and engineers that certify the drawings. We have inspections during the construction of the project. So there's a lot of checks and balances for our construction here in Honolulu and Hawaii. You know, 
we just recently had Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi talking about his concerns about the staffing at DPP. Mm-hmm. They're looking at some way to be able to either self-certify because we've got to deal with the permit issues and the backlogs that everybody's experiencing. So how are you folks looking at that landscape? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually just, a small group of us had a meeting this morning specifically with DPP to talk about this self-certification and to you know, gauge the temperature about the profession and see how receptive we would be to self-certify. And there's a lot of details to work out. One of the bigger concerns is for an owner and the architect to take full liability of this permitting process really impacts our insurance coverage. So we would have to review with our insurance carriers to see if our insurance actually does allow us to you know, accept this full liability. And it's kind of early. Some of us have been talking to our insurance carriers, and until we understand what the city's going to require for this self-certification, we're not quite sure how our insurance carriers are going to address that. But that's one item. However, However, we are fully in support of any opportunity that kind of helps the backlog with DPP. You know, any little progress or any permit that we can remove from the review process that will open it up for other reviews is something we'll fully support. I appreciate that the city is looking at other options to help do that in addition to trying to work to expedite the permit process. The self-certification is is an interesting opportunity and and, you know, we'd like to work out the details, but it's something we're certainly open to discuss. You know, we did talk with Dean Uchida before he stepped away from the job as head of DPP, and he had expressed some concern about the third-party reviewers, that some companies just had terrible records and they just weren't following the rules. And he wanted to list those companies on the website so that customers knew, you know, this company had a horrible failure rate. So they knew what they were getting into. In our discussions with Dean, he let us know that same kind of plan was to create kind of a report card that's available to the public that would kind of be full, full transparent representation of how these third parties are reviewing these plans. Yeah, make them accountable, right? Absolutely. I mean, you've got the bad apples and, you know, you can see the bad apples. Yeah, I think that would have been fantastic. I mean, it would be great for us as architects to understand, you know, who are the bad apples and who are the reliable third-party reviewers. So, unfortunately, we haven't really seen that. And we've seen the audits and the impact of several of these bad apples that have kind of forced this big backlog. But I think the third-party reviews are a really good opportunity in addition to you know the self-certification I think the third party review is just another tool for the city to use to help pull some of the permits off of DPP's Kuliana and let someone else do it to help open up you know that backlog so I understand that it's very difficult you know maybe there's a training program for these third party reviewers maybe there's standards that we start to set that we hold these third party reviewers to a specific standard that we can trust and rely upon. And yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to use them to help the city. Mayor uh, Mitch Roth on the Big Island said that they actually brought someone in to look at their department to say, okay, here are the shortcomings, here are the pluses, you know, and here's what you need to do in order to get where you want to go, you know. So I think each county is kind of looking at how can we improve. You know, at the AIA, we have a, a small group that is composed of engineers, our Hawaii State Council, our AIA Honolulu, AIA Maui, several third-party reviewers, and it spans all counties of Hawaii, because we know this isn't just a city and county of Honolulu issue. You know, our company, Peter Vincent Architects, we have projects on Maui, Kauai, and, you know, so every county has their own issue, and, and so the point of this group is to kind of assess each one and kind of try to quantify what's working and what's not, and you know, try to facilitate a conversation so that we're kind of assisting these government agencies a little bit. So, you know, our first task is to, I call it our, our hunting and gathering stage, where we're trying to gather as much information and how the process is, and then you know, try to come up with some solutions and and use some of the progress of some of the other counties and bring it to the others so that we can kind of get on the same page. Ideally, 
as a state, it would be great to be consistent with this process so that each county has a similar process. Where right now it's it's very different. So yeah, and, and, yeah, and most firms, you know, we do work in all the counties, so it's a challenge. We're kind of learning from scratch every time we submit for a permit. And you know, we see how state and the counties are looking to throw a lot of money at housing. We're trying to figure out how do we expedite this, how do we cut through the red tape. You know, at the same time, some of these projects are going to be modular, and so you're kind of wondering, you know, what's on the landscape for the AIA for our Hawaii architects? Because you see, you know, some of these luxury projects go up, and you know, it's not always the local architects that get the business; they bring people from from outside. So, how do we deal with? Them? Yeah, that's a very common thing. Um, we see that a lot. You know, we see architects from the mainland who are signing and sealing uh, drawings here, and they're not as familiar with our process, and especially on affordable housing. You know, Hawaii has a, a very strict uh, affordable housing requirement for our housing, which is really important. But on the mainland, it's not a common thing. So city and county of Honolulu particularly is you know, doing a good job in trying to, when you create housing, that you designate a certain percentage that is affordable. So you know, it's quite different than how it is on the mainland, for sure. Yeah. And then just getting around this whole thing of tapping our local architects, on some projects, you know, those mainland architects, they, they're hired and then they, they sometimes use a local architect that is more so familiar that. with the project and, and can kind of review it based on the local regulations. And it, it's kind of a collaborative effort sometimes. But yeah, no, it, it's we see that pretty frequently and it is frustrating for our, our local architects and engineers. We'd like to kind of do the work in our backyard and we hate to see it kind of outsourced to, to mainland companies. So it's a challenge, but it's also sometimes a, a good collaborative opportunity opportunity, working with some of the mainland firms and trying to figure out how they do things there. And sometimes they can bring some good input, you know, here to Hawaii. So sometimes it could work out. What are you looking forward to accomplishing just to, to boost you know, the awareness about what you do? Yeah, so last year was kind of our getting back to some normalcy. You know, We started to have in-person events, which was great. This year, we're really trying to capitalize on that. We're really starting to have different, unique, and multiple in-person events. But we're trying to capitalize on everyone kind of coming back together and seeing each other in person and have that camaraderie. And we just just had our kickoff event a few weeks ago. You know, it was 130 people, and, and so many people said, man, I, I forgot what everyone looked like, and this is just so great. And just to be together, and I really want to capitalize on that energy throughout the year, not only use it for our members, but really reach out to the public, you know, to our municipalities, to our developers, to our, our scientists, and reach out to everyone and really start to have these conversations that are really critical right now in Hawaii. So our goal is to really capitalize on that opportunity and, and springboard onto, you know, good discussion. That was Todd Hassler, head of the Honolulu chapter of the AIA, who we talked to last week. He was talking about the trends on the construction landscape. AIA Honolulu has resumed its downtown architectural walking tours and has added a new Chinatown tour. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Our reality check with our uh, partners at Honolulu Civil Beat today features a story that Christina Dedra broke about indictments that were handed down against a well-connected lobbyist now involved in an animal rescue group, Poi Dogs and Popoki. Good morning, Christina. Morning. Thanks for having me. Yes. And so uh, the lobbyists were talking about uh, Alicia Maluafiti. She appeared in federal court yesterday. That's right. She's pleaded not guilty uh, to 27 counts of using the Drug Enforcement Administration registration of another person. Basically, what the feds are accusing her of is using a veterinarian's um, basically like drug license uh, to procure controlled substances while he was on the mainland no longer working for her, her organization. Um, and I did speak with Malua Fiti, and she said, you know, she acknowledged using um, someone else's DEA license, but she said she had his permission. Uh, I also spoke to the vet, though. He said that never happened, and even if it did, it's still illegal. And so, gosh, I mean, uh, what happens now? I mean, she pled not guilty, but um, then what, it goes to trial? 
Right. So a trial has been tentatively scheduled for April, although it looks like it's going to be um, pushed back due to some scheduling conflicts. But um, yeah, you know, initially um, the feds filed court paperwork indicating that Malua CT would be pleading guilty. They initially charged her on a felony information, meaning she would cooperate with the charges. Um, but then she later decided to, to fight it and go not guilty. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. You know, it's sort of interesting that um, this case centers on Alicia Malua Fiti because she's kind of a prominent person in political circles. Um, she's a very well-connected lobbyist. She's um, represented the interests of the GMO industry, um, pesticide industry, HMSA, you name it, realtors. Um, she's represented a lot of powerful interests here, and she has a lot of powerful friends as well. Yes, and she's also been the recipient of uh, uh, grants, I think, on the, both the state and um, county level. That's right. She's gotten um, both city and state funding for her organization, um, you know, through the grant aid process. Um, but it actually, it caused a little bit of controversy a couple of years ago because she had two state lawmakers on the organi- organization's board, um, and they both voted on grant aid funding for that same organization. Um so it, she definitely has had people over the years willing to to support the nonprofit that she was president of. Yeah, and I, I know many people will probably uh, know her organization as uh, the one that has a, a mobile clinic that goes around to, you know, spay people's cats and dogs. Uh, exactly. You may have seen the vans around. They say the big fix on them, and they would do, you know, dozens of spay and neuter surgeries in a day, um, sometimes for, for low-income and homeless folks, but, you know, otherwise just for anybody who had an interest in controlling the, the stray population here, which I think everyone agrees is a worthwhile goal, um, but, you know, the veterinarian um, at the center of this case said, you know, she went about it the wrong way. Yeah, when I checked with the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, I know that they said that she no longer serves on the uh, veterinarian board and uh, that that veterinarian, uh, I think he forfeited his license because, you know, he, he he doesn't live here anymore. Right. The vet involved um, moved away back to, to uh, the mainland. I think um, Wisconsin is where he's from. Um, and, yeah, that you make a, a good point. Um, Lofiti at the time that these alleged activities were happening, that she was improperly using someone's license. She was on the board that oversees vets and their licenses. So she was part of the group that had the opportunity and the power to take other vets' license away. Um, but yet, you know, she's accused of doing this improper stuff um, yeah. at the same time. Yeah, so it's a really unusual case and curious that she's, you know, reversing her position um, uh, on you know cooperating, so I guess we'll see what happens when this case does go to trial. Right, you know it is uh, the stakes are high for Alicia Malouafiti. She could go up, go to prison um, for years. There's 27 counts, and each count um, she faces up to four years in prison. So you know it's unlikely she'll get that full total, but um, you know it, they are serious charges. Yeah, and when I checked with the state, I know that I uh, was asking if you know th- th- they had uh, any grants and aids that they had opened uh, uh, for the organization, and they said they had not yet. It was still in the pipeline. So it'll be interesting to see the outcome of events here. But thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. We have been talking to reporter Christina Jedra for today's Reality Check. Uh, to read her stories, visit civilbeat.org. back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Mahino Olelo Hawaii, or Hawaiian Language Month, and our partners at the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa have assembled a series of interviews that were done with Kapuna, who were born around the turn of the 20th century. At the time, Hawaiian was still spoken as a first language, but some Kapuna did not want their children to learn it. 
This month's interviews were done years ago in Olelo Hawaii, the Hawaiian language. You'll only hear some of the Hawaiian, but it may be enough to detect the difference from how the Hawaiian language is taught and spoken today. The interviews were done in Kona. Uh, UH Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kabikatengan does the introductions and the translations. Margaret Kamaka Spinney was born in 1910 in North Kona, where her parents wove and sewed lohala items. She talks about how her mother taught her to weave her first lohala hat. It didn't matter if it was full of holes, because they would burn the first hat so that she could learn from her mistakes about how to make it better. She could weave whatever she wanted after that. That's how she was taught by her mother-in-law. She was also taught to sew patchwork quilts, but she didn't care for it as much. She liked to weave lohala. And because she liked it so much, she planted several acres of lohala, the thornless kind. <laughs> Fred Iona was born in 1899 in Pahoehoe, South Kona. He started farming when he was young, later acquiring land where he cultivated ava, banana, macadamia nuts, and peanuts. He talks about how the area was filled with people who carved canoes. His uncle made canoes, and they used to climb the mountains when he was young to cut the koa. If the elepayo came and picked at the tree, there would be holes. The experts would watch the elepayo and select the tree that was good to carve. Then, after some months, the log would be dragged down, with people in back protecting the wood and guiding it. <laughs> Amoy Juni was born in Kahalu'u, North Kona in 1894. As a child, she learned about fishing, lauhala weaving, and other Hawaiian practices. She talks about how the land belonged to the king and sections were given out. The beach was for fishermen and malka for people to plant taro and make poi. Planters would come down with poi and fishermen would go up with fish. She remembers that parties usually had fish, poi, raw fish, pulehu fish, whatever seafood was available, vana, opihi, and pig. That was Margaret Spinney, Fred Iona, and Amoy uh, Juni, as well as UH Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kavika Tengen. This oral history project is supported by the Sharp Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. Early this morning, we spoke with the grandson of one of those speakers, Margaret Spinney. Kaikala Spinney's early education took place in a Hawaiian language immersion school, and he's now a student at UH. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, w what were you thinking when you were listening to this segment today? Um, it was really amazing because I never met or heard my great-grandma ever before, so that was my first time hearing her. But I heard a lot of mo'olelo about her. When I listen to the language, and, and, and I don't speak it, but it, it's just so melodic. And uh, I don't know how different it is, you know, to your ear, you know, when you hear native speakers, how different it is. It's almost similar, but definitely different. It has, I feel like it's more natural when it comes out instead of, uh, when I talk to a lot of Olala Hawaii people, they like, they got to stop, pause, because they like learn English first, so they got to remember what to say. You got to switch gears. Yeah. And so uh, share with our listeners how you learned Hawaiian. I don't know if it was spoken in your home or did you just learn it uh, at the charter school? Um, I learned it at the charter school for eight years, but I did grow up first with English and then like more mainly pidgin. So like it was kind of harder to learn Olala Hawaii. At the charter school, Hello Kumana, it was, uh, you have a mandatory class of Olala Hawaii and then Hula. They just try to put all Hawaiian stuff on top of you, trying to teach you what you won't learn at home. 
to really immerse you in it. And would they speak English during the classes, or was it strictly all Hawaiian? It was mostly English, but sometimes during Hawaiian classes, they do let you do a little Hawaii, which will help you get better at it. And then with hula, uh, you know, I, I know there's so many uh, of the chants as well as the melee. So that really just what helped to kind of reinforce the language and you understand what, what's, what's happening with those dances? Yeah. Um, hula, we do, of course, um, kahiko, which is all alelo. And then we have to learn oli to enter halos. And then for our school, we actually do opening and closing. Uh, we just do vehe, um, which is opening, and then we do a chant to get into school. That's how we start off a day. And we do um, just olis to um, make everyone open-minded. We call it a jar at school. When you go home, you empty your jar, and when you come to school, you have the jar empty, so you have it to fill it up. Um, and that's what we do. And you were fortunate because you were able go to go to this uh a charter school. It was in Mikiki, right? Yes. And you just uh, live over in the Papakalea area, so it, it's close by. It's in your community. Yeah, very easy transportation. And so uh, what was it like for your classmates, you know, oh. uh, being in, in this experience and, and, and learning over the years? Hello Kumana is really different from a lot of different schools, uh, especially since it's such a small school. We have about 120 students from fourth grade to 12th grade. Our class from like fourth to eighth grade, we had like 20 students and it slowly died off. We, I graduated with five other people, so super small, but uh, because of how small it is, you get to like become ohana, become family, become super close where we can like legit call each other if we can stay at each other's house anytime. We just become really great friends from the whole uh, class. And are do you continue to speak it with your friends or, or your relatives? I try to. I definitely try to do it more in Kulanui in college uh, with other peers I have. And so what are you studying in college? I'm doing ACM Creative Media. I am also doing Olalo Hawaii, still continuing to learn, and then also uh, Hawaiian history. I know there's a great movement to really incorporate Olalo uh, Hawaii in tech media, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the, the diacritical marks to translations of popular culture, you know, because they just see how important it is to really be immersed in it, in the language and the technology of, of you know, how young people are living today. Yeah, I really definitely like how we're making more melee music videos and then putting it out on top of like YouTube and then on top radios, just pushing out Olalo Hawaii into the digital media area. It's kind of like one step at a time, right? I mean, yeah. you've got the, 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 the groundings of the language and now as you get into this area of creative media, how you can blend the two. Mm-hmm. As you think back of your grandma's time and how she learned the language, I don't know, what what are your thoughts about that? I thought it was really great because they get to learn it in their household or especially for a great grandma. Uh, they learned it from their mother, their father. But I remember my grandpa talked about how she told him that he cannot speak Olelo Hawaii especially since he went to school, they told him he couldn't speak it, so then it started dying off. But it was really sad, yeah. Yeah, well, I I think one big takeaway, though, is to see young people like you learning the language and bringing it back uh, and taking it on to another step, you know, as we build curriculum for other charter schools or at the um, at the university level. I think it's, it's a wonderful thing that you're carrying on this tradition uh, that, that your, your grandma, you know, was immersed in and that you can hopefully help your kids and your grandkids <laughs> later on. Yeah. But thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank Mahalo. you for having me. We have been talking with 18-year-old Kaikala Spinney, great-grandson of Margaret Spinney, who we heard featured in the Hawaiian language segment produced by the UH Center for Oral History. Uh, Kaikala learned the Hawaiian language through classes at the charter school, and he proudly shared that, like his great-grandma, he learned how to weave a lauhala hat thanks to classes at Halau Kumana, which is dedicated to preserving the Native Hawaiian language and culture. Mahalo to them and the UH Center for Oral History as we celebrate Hawaiian Language Month. What makes a vacation memorable? 
For some people, it's the food and the drinks. There's this bar in, in the Canadian Arctic you can go to and you do a, a, a shot while having pressed up against your lips the toe of a dead man. How strange situations leave us with happy memories. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. HPR's final in-person concert in its Mele Hawaii series with Galliard String Quartet and Rayatea Helm is sold out. This intimate performance of Queen Lili Ookalani's compositions will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on future concerts at our Atherton studio, sign up for a free newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. NPR's annual Tiny Desk Contest is a chance for unsigned music artists from around the country to receive national exposure by showcasing their talent in front of several judges with ties to the music industry. The winner gets the opportunity to play a Tiny Desk concert at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C., and to headline the Tiny Desk Concert on the Road Tour. And if the winner is from Hawaii, they also get the chance to follow in the footsteps of ukulele virtuoso Taimani Gardner. In 2020, she became the first musician from our state to play a Tiny Desk concert. So how can local musicians enter the contest and make an impression on the judges? The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with concert series creator Bob Boylan and contest judge Bobby Carter. Bob, I'm a huge fan of the Tiny Desk Concerts. I've enjoyed tons of performances. My favorite of all time is Weird Al. I just, <laughs> I, I just think it's such a great, uh, you guys did a great job of capturing uh, such a different side of Weird Al. When you first created Tiny Desk Concert, did you ever think it would become such a part of public radio culture and have the impact that it does? I knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I, 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 I obviously joke. It's just amazing, and it still unfolds, and it still surprises me, and I'm sure that's true for Bobby Carter as well, who may not have been there working on those very first Tiny Desks, but has been so instrumental in shaping and making the Tiny Desks what it's become. But in the eyes of the and ears of the listener, to discover all these things and for many of these artists to change and shape their their lives and their you know trajectory into the music world that has been so thrilling this question is for bobby you've had all kinds of music artists on tiny desk concerts from music legends to unsigned artists and and every across every style of musical genre how have you seen tiny desk concert provide exposure for up and coming artists and increase exposure for established artists? For the less established artists, I believe that it really helped to obviously expose them and, and, and take their, their careers to new levels. Um, I think about people like Lucky Day and I think about people like her, who obviously were on their way, well on their way before they got to the Tiny Desk, but what Tiny Desk is really great at capturing a moment and sort of maximizing the moment and, and taking it to a new level. So I, I take a tremendous amount of pride, and I don't know Bob does as well. You know, we get the most fulfillment out of those artists who not everybody may, they, you know, everyone doesn't know yet, but once they hit the stage, once they hit the, the desk, they make such a big impression, and, and it's cool to really see the those careers sort of take off from that tiny desk moment. And for the bigger, more established artists, it's really cool to see them take that big <laughs> arena-sized <laughs> concert that they may have played the night before literally behind a desk at NPR's offices. It's, it's a challenge, and, and challenging talent is a wonderful thing to do because you get something that's both satisfying to the viewer and satisfying to the creator. One thing I think the concert series does as well is I think it kind of creates bridges between a lot of different music fans as well. I know I have a daughter who just graduated from college, and we both enjoy Tiny Desk concerts, and she's constantly 
sending me stuff. She's like, Dad, I've heard of these guys. You know, check them out. And I'll, I could do the same for, you know, somebody like the Black Crows or Chris Stapleton or somebody that, I, that I'm familiar with. And, and it's something that we can exchange and, and expand each other's worlds. Do you see that in other, with other listeners as well? I certainly do. And I think that, like, one of the things about Tiny Desk is that we are not genre-specific and, and therefore cover a multitude of artists. And, and I love that engagement between parent and the child so to speak, things that happen intergenerational. People come to the Tiny Desk Concert Series many just to see what's new and what we're presenting, not necessarily to see the classical artists or the, you know, the hip-hop or the rock artists that we're going to put on. And so we all get lost in our own little worlds of music, and it's really a series that hopes to break people out of that. And two years ago, you had your first boy musician to appear on Tiny Desk Concert, Taimane Gardner. Talk about how all that came together and how it was received by the audience. My memory is that I saw Timani at South by Southwest in 2019. You know, it's important for us, meaning us, meaning Bobby Carter and myself, and the NPR music staff to always just be like trying to find new music. South by Southwest is a music festival that was always important for me to find new music and go and see things from all over the world that I'd never get to see. There aren't coming to the clubs near me to see artists who don't have publicists yet, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think it was Global Fest, who is a, a, an organization that we work with, who have helped me discover so much music from all over the world. I think they did a, a show at South by Southwest, and that's where I first saw Timani and immediately was struck by something very unique. And then when Timani came to NPR, she brought a, a dancer and made it very much deep representation of the culture that she is, and her music is such a part of, and I think put on quite an astonishing show. That was a memorable show. That was one of the last shows we recorded for before we went to Corinth. Yeah, it was one of the last shows, and I just remember, I, I, I was unaware of Taimani before that, but was just blown away the way she <laughs> rocked out on that ukulele. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> Bobby, as one of the producers on the show, what are some of the other things that you guys do to, to find talent to bring on to the concert? Well, I'm a DJ, so I'm always, aside from the hundreds of publicist emails we get per day, I think it, I'm a DJ, so I'm always daily, hourly looking for that next artist, that next sound, that sound that I've never experienced before. So I'm always on the hunt. I'm always scouring YouTube. I'm always scouring SoundCloud. Twitter, I get a bunch of stuff. Obviously, TikTok is a source now. So I'm always looking for the next thing. And, and then from there, it's always, you know, looking at YouTube to find out if they can actually put on a good live performance. So always, I'm always doing that, always on the hunt. And then we have this thing called the Tiny Desk Contest, which, you know, we'll get four or 5,000 entries from all over the U.S. territories, and there they are, you know, people we've never, ever seen or heard before. And then hopefully we fall in love with one and put them behind the desk and change their lives. And then many, many others who don't win will feature and put out there. And speaking of Tiny Desk Concert, the contest opened this month, and I know you'll be accepting submissions until March 13th. You must receive thousands of submissions for the contest every year. Do you recall any from Hawaii? I'll be honest that I don't look at any biographical information on artists when I watch it. I try to watch it as blindly as possible so I don't have any, you know, favorite Brooklyn artists from where I was born or whatever. I I make that up with these artists. It's really important for us to be sort of blank slate in that regard. So uh, it's hard to say. But we want people from Hawaii to enter. When you do look at the video submissions, what are you looking for? 
Can you talk about some of the qualities of the music that tend to catch the judges' attention? I always say nothing in particular other than just something that, that just really just commands our attention, whether that's the way the band is playing, whether that's a unique voice, something that, that sort of stops us in our tracks. When you look at our winners, when you look at Elisa Amador, when you look at a tank and the bangers. I don't want to go to you're immediately grabbed. It takes two seconds to figure out that you're watching and you're listening to something special. So it's a call out to all genres, but just do something that, that feels really, really good. And I always say you have plenty of shots to perfect your video and do it until it, it, it feels really good and give it your absolute best. Yeah, it's important to, for us to see something that we try as judges not to judge based on the kind of music we might like, but based on the talent that we see. So we're looking for unique, singular kind of voices that, and I say voices in the bigger regard as a band or whatever it might be, but someone that's and something that truly stands out that you want to just go, whoa, did, I got to show you this. You know, when you're sitting in the office and watching it, you know, you want to take it to the, the desk of your, your workmate or, or share it with a friend. That's the kind of stuff we're looking for. And, and look, not everybody's a winner, but just enter. Do something you're proud of and send it to us. That'll make you feel good inside. Trust me. Bobby, what would you say to any musician listening that are on the fence about entering? I'll say to them, just jump. Just take the leap of faith. You just never know where the chips are going to fall. And I can guarantee you their submission will be seen and it will be heard. We get thousands and they're all addressed. So there's no better time than now because we're watching and you just never know where this opportunity can take you. Yeah, and none of the winners ever, ever thought they would win. Plain and simple. That's right. <laughs> right on. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. Thank you so much for your time, Bobby. Thank you, Russ. Take care. That was Tiny Desk Concert Series creator Bob Boylan and series producer Bobby Carter. They were talking to HVR's Russell Subiono. That contest is open to unsigned music artists, but you have to submit your entry by March 13th. That's around the corner. If you're interested in entering, we'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that's it for it's today. Up tomorrow, we talk about water and the forever chemicals and a film about a U.S. military base in Okinawa. We do welcome feedback. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast online or on Spotify and Apple or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>